Well, good morning, Connection Church. Good to be with you all. Labor Day crowd, the tough ones. I like it. Good to be with y'all. My name's uh, Jordan, and I, I'm serving on staff uh, as one of our pastors. And uh, I, I would echo everything that Morgan said. Uh, just would love to see even more of our church. God is doing something really special uh, through the Connection Equipping Academy, and it's just cool to see uh, people's stories uh, unite in that class and then just to see what, what God is doing in their lives. I, I love what Morgan said, to be a part of the family of Jesus. That's what it's about, right? Uniting in the family of Jesus and growing as a part of that family, growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Uh, I would sum that up as the, the, the goal of CEA. It's just to help us follow Jesus, to help others follow Jesus. Um, I'm just so proud of Morgan, so thankful for her and the life of our church and, uh, and everything that she, she brings to us. And so um, we're in a series called Our House, right? That's the, the series that we're in. We're talking about the different values, the, the things that are uh, household values, if you would. Uh, I think these are values that you see in, in most churches, uh, there's some cookie ones out there. But in most churches, this, these are the values that we certainly want to aspire to for us as Connection Church. And as I was thinking about uh, values, what are values? What are, what, what, what are these things? A, a value is, is, this, is this principle, right, that your life bumps up against and it either encourages that behavior or it corrects that behavior, Right, so you, you had family values growing up, right? You had things in your house, no family values. I, I understand, I get it. I'm, I'm starting to, no family values in the entire room. I'm starting to, it's starting to make a little more sense to me. I'm just kidding. You had family values, no? Yeah. So maybe there were some that manifested themselves in little phrases, little things that would come up. Uh, maybe you, you uh, heard values growing up that sounded something like this. If you start it, you better finish it. Right? You don't, you don't join the team, you don't sign up for the thing, and then halfway through you quit. Right? That was the family value for us. If you're going to sign up for it, if you're going to start it, you better finish it. Or you better not start any fights, but if somebody else starts one with you, you better finish it. You can end the fight. That was a family value. That's a principle growing up. Right? That was, uh, if, if you get a whipping at school, you come home, you better expect another one, another principle when we were growing up. Um, if you're on time, you're late. If you're five minutes early, you're on time. That's a, another, another family value. Don't sweat the small stuff. Don't cry over spilled milk. These are family values. These are kind of little sayings that we hear growing up. I asked some of the staff what some of the ones that they had uh, growing up. One that JC shared, he said, uh, his dad would say, don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> Sydney uh, Chapman uh, she said that her, her dad would say to her, if you keep cocking that eyebrow at me like that, I'm going to shave it off. It was like, a, uh, it's like I guess she had a, a, a mean look that she would give her dad. Um, Morgan, she said, uh, I, I, this is one we've all heard, right? I brought you into this world. I'll take you out of it. That's one that we heard growing up. Uh, Joey's, uh, Joey said, I'll break your arm off and I'll beat you with the bloody end of it. That was a family value growing up, right? We, we've, all been, we've all been given that threat. Um, I love another one from JC. It says, sitting in the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a Ford. I thought that was hilarious. His dad was a pastor, and so that one, that one made me laugh. Uh, a few that I heard growing up that I think were just ones that stood out to me uh, Will always, will always get you everything you need, but only some of what you want. 
That was like a phrase my dad would say a lot. Usually around the toy aisle in Walmart when I was a little kid, it's like, son, we'll get you everything you need, pointing at the grocery section of the store. Well, we ain't going to get you everything you want. Um, I'm your parent first and your friend second. Anybody else hear that growing up? I'm your parent first. I got to discipline you. Uh, There's a, a big sign on the rec department in lines. It said, work hard, dream big, good things will happen. That was like a, a, a phrase at the rec department. It was like a value. We're going to work hard. We're going to dream big. And these values, what they do, right, is they serve as these principles in the life of your family. And when your behavior bumps up against that principle, it either encourages that behavior or you face the consequences. Like being on time. That's the easiest one, right? If you're late, there are consequences. In my family, for sure. My family's the kind of family that gets everywhere 15 minutes early. Like if, if our family says they're coming to town, or like if my mom or dad say they're coming to town, and they say they're going to be there in the morning, that means like 7.30. They're there early. They're going to be everywhere early. But uh, Macy was telling me that when she was growing up, her sister never got anywhere on time, always struggled to be on time. And that behavior would bump up against her parents' sensibilities and principles like, no, we are going to be on time. And one day she was, was running late, of course, hair half done, makeup half done, book bag, one strap on, and she's running out the door because her mom is driving away. And the minivan door's still open. Sister's running down the driveway to jump into the van as it's moving because they had had enough. The principle is we are going to be on time. And uh, if you're running late, that principle bumps up against that Behavior. So the question that we want to ask this morning, and what we've been asking in this series is, what, what are principles or what are uh, values of the church? What are values that Jesus has for us? Uh, what are values that, what, what is it that Jesus cares about his church? And I think we're going we're gonna to see um, something really powerful. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Uh, we'll start kind of there, and we'll move through a few things. But let me read Acts 2, 41 through 47, and we're going we're gonna to look at, a, I think, a, a value that Jesus has for his church here. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Let me pray. Lord God, we just entrust ourselves to your care in this moment. Lord, we need your wisdom to be able to understand your word. Holy Spirit, we need you to guide us. So God, I pray in this time that you would come, that you would move in our midst, that your word would be living and active. God, I pray that you would um, protect our community. Be here this morning. Help us to, to know you more, to live more uh, like Jesus today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you would say, would, would you go out on a limb with me this morning and say, I, 
I would say I'm a people first kind of person. Show of hands. I'm, I like to think of myself one, two, couple people. You're, you're more of a people. Maybe you're a, are you a, who's a, who's a people person? You're a people person. A couple more people. Now, when we read Acts 2, 41 through 47, who would say, yeah, I'm a people person like they're people people? You know what I mean? You've, have you ever met a people person and then you're like, yeah, I thought I was a people person. That is a people person. That is an others-oriented person. Acts 2, 41 through 47, really all week has, has challenged me in reading this uh, as, as somebody who's, uh, who's tried to devote my entire life to um, just being a pastor and trying to understand uh, God's word and, and how to teach it. Like, I don't know if I'm a people person like they're people people. In Acts 2, 41 through 47, I see something that is a value that Jesus has for his church, which is that people come first. People first, that's the principle, or that's the value, I think, that Jesus would challenge us with from this, this morning, is God's people should be people first. And when I read Acts 2, 41 through 47, I would describe it, I would break people first down in these three ways. Number one, they were deeply caring. Man, they are a deeply caring community. Verse 44, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They are deeply caring. Now think about this. That they are describing it as this, as they, all the believers were together and held all things in common. This is when 3,000 new people show up. Think about if 3,000 new people were added to this room, and not even to this room, like to our uh, body of Christ, like to our local church, just influx, 3,000 new people come to our church. Could we genuinely say that we were all together and we held everything in common with even the newest among us. That's impressive. That's impressive community. They were irrationally generous. Not only were they deeply caring, they were irrationally generous. They sold their possessions and property, verse 45, and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Man, it's, it's hard enough to be extremely sacrificial for the people that you know the best. Imagine being this sacrificial sacrificial for all the new people that just showed up. And then lastly, they were intentionally equipping. This was a, a, a compelling community. And I think it's why they were able to be deeply caring and irrationally generous is because they intentionally equipped, back up to verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. As these new people were coming in as new people from, from all kinds of different backgrounds, from all different walks of life. They're coming and they're meeting Jesus personally. And the Holy Spirit is changing their life and they're being introduced to the life of the church. The church was careful to welcome them in and intentionally equip them to do what? Be deeply caring, irrationally generous. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They were people first. That, I, that, what that tells me, what I want us to understand from that really is just Jesus cares how the church conducts itself. Jesus cares about this as a value. Think about the context of the book of Acts is that we're, we're, we're less than a few chapters away from Ananias and Sapphira who sneak in and they begin to uh, they begin to distort the teachings of the church. They begin to 
uh, they began to elevate their name while keeping some of the profit. They were, in other words, they were trying to make themselves look better and better and better, and it was hurting the name of Jesus. Jesus had a value. It's like, we're not going to be brand first. We're not going to be uh, out in front, big name, big title, big reputation type people first. We're going to be people first. I think that's a challenge to us that we, that we want to not only be, and, and this is what I would say, people first, it, it, it can sound like, oh, you mean just be nice to other people. Just be kind to other people. Just be you know, being people first, it's not being an extrovert. It's not being like just willing to walk up and have any type of conversation with anybody. It, it's really clear to me in Acts 2, 41 through 47, that it, it had some detail to it. Deeply caring, irrationally generous, intentionally equipping. And now we started off talking about how do we see this as a value? A value is something, it's a principle that life bumps up against and it either corrects it or it encourages it. So where are some moments for us? I think this is worth asking. Where are moments for us where our life bumps up against a people first value and we betray that value? Like if we're looking at a community like this in Acts 2, 41 through 47, where are moments where our life bumps up against that, against that and we're just not as deeply caring, irrationally generous and intentionally equipping? It's interesting, James 4 uh, speaks to this and it's a, it's a powerful passage. It says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? He's asking the exact same question. Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. You do not have because you do not ask. Oh, so the fix is just asking. Is that it? Not exactly. Verse 3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. This is a really challenging passage. It's a really challenging passage to preach because all right, principle number one, when does life bump up against this value? Place number one, our heart, our own motives. It's saying, it's, it's saying and, and understand this, James is writing to churches, not to just the world out there. He's writing to the world in here. He's writing to followers of Jesus that would say, yeah, I wanna be deeply caring. I wanna be irrationally generous. I wanna be intentionally equipping. I wanna be a people first person. James's first challenge to us. The source of wars and fights among you is the cravings that are at war within your own heart. I think that's, that's, that's really challenging to us is that we have to ask ourselves, and I think what it is, it's an invitation to look inside and ask, where have I not surrendered this people-first mentality? And I think there's a few, practical, uh, a, pra a few practical areas that we can see uh, where this value bumps up against life. And what comes out is not always a people-first mindset. But our first place, the first invitation within this, I would just challenge us, is that our own heart, our own motive, our own, uh, our own desires are at war within us. And uh, I think God cares about us enough to tell us that. But let me give you maybe three or four practical ways, three or four practical areas where uh, where we failed and typically put people first. I would say moments of stress, 
moments of worry, our own to-do list, and when we get in arguments or tension. So number, number one, moments of stress. So one day, <clears throat> moments of stress can cause us to not put people first. So one day, I'm outside, I gotta cut the grass, get my lawnmower out, my little push mower, and uh, get and my my wife Macy comes outside and she's like, "Hey, McClendon wants to play outside with you while you're cutting the grass." No problem. I got a solution for this. McClendon, I just squat down with her. It's like, "All right, baby, Daddy's got to cut the grass. I'm gonna put my headphones in. Uh, I'm not gonna be able to hear you. The lawnmower is gonna be loud. You're gonna play on the trampoline. I'm gonna cut the grass. We're not gonna be able to talk." And if you guys know, my kid loves to talk, 90 to nothing, all about it, every detail. Let's talk about it. And uh, so headphones in, I'm cutting the grass, and uh, she's jumping on the trampoline. I kind of make one pass down, turn around, I make one pass back. I'm going to turn around again, and I look over, and I see her little face pushed up against the screen on the trampoline, and she's like just, her little mouth is just moving. <clears throat> and of course, being the extremely godly dad that I am, I... Uh, I let go of the lawnmower all dramatic and I go stomping over to the trampoline and I snatch my AirPods out all dramatically and I'm like, what is it, baby? What is it? What could you have to say? My AirPods are in. I can't hear you. What is it? And she just like kind of turns her shoulder away from me and she says, I just wanted to tell you you were doing a good job. And she walks to the other side of the trampoline and oh, just rips my heart out because what's the truth in that moment? Is there any part of me that cares about cutting the grass more than my girl? Is there any part of me that even wants to be cutting the grass more than hanging out with my kid? Like there's nothing about like the task of cutting the grass or the stress of cutting the grass. It's just my own heart that betrays me in that moment. Like I, of course I wanna hear what she has to say. And of course, for you with your kid or, or your significant other or whoever it might be, you, you definitely want to hear what they have to say. But these moments of, of stress, right, these moments of pressure, these moments of tension betray the value that we feel, which is people come first more over tasks. But these moments of stress can draw stuff out of us that uh, we didn't foresee or didn't plan on. Another thing is moments of worry. Worry just draw stuff out of us that we didn't plan, right? The, the, the worry, the, the pressures of the world, the pressures of our job, the pressures of our life, draw worry out of us. And what the, that worry does is it blinds us to the people who are right in front of us. Worry blinds us to the people who are right in front of us. Again, to-do lists. I don't know about you. I, for one thing, I have an endless amount of selfish stories. So you need another one? Holler at me after the service, happy to share another one. But uh, the, when I was in uh, grad school, uh, I was talking to a couple different folks. We were thinking about uh, getting together and trying to start a church. Big dream. And I remember what came out of me in the midst of that was, a, well, for one thing, extremely opinionated, if you can imagine that. And I, was, I just had all these things that I just thought were like closed-handed issues, like this is what we got to do. And I'll never forget, was one of the greatest gifts that a friend of mine ever gave me. He sat me down over dinner and he said, Jordan, I just feel like consistently you care about the issue more than you care about our friendship. I think you consistently care more about being right 
than being in this relationship. Whatever it was, and, and we're just talking about like, what, what should the church look like? We're dreaming about fun stuff. And I would, the to-do list or the principle or just my own opinion, my preference mattered to me more than the person. And I think that betrays the heart of Jesus. And I think that's what he was inviting me to is that, hey, Jesus was consistently a people first savior. And those moments like that betray the value that I felt very deeply that, no, bro, I care way more about you than I care about than all this stuff. But it was an invitation that sometimes in the pressure and the stress of life, we can care more about stuff, the preferences, the tension, the job, the to-do list, more than we care about people. Another thing that can betray this value is not living where you're planted. We can consistently dream about the thing that's way out there and miss the people where we're planted. And this is what I mean. This is one of the things that I mean. We can be so concerned about the world out there that we're missing the people that God has placed right in front of us. The, people's, the people whose lives we're meant to be invested in. We can be so worried about the next current event, the next disaster, which those things should break our heart. They break God's heart. But what we can wind up doing is sitting on our phone, disaster scrolling through social media, through news outlet after news outlet, and we can miss the conversations that are right in front of us. We can miss the people who are right there in front of us not living where we're planted. We can be so worried about the next thing, the next season of life, the next uh, thing that we want. This was me in college. Again, another selfish story. Here you go. Uh, I remember in college being so worried about what the church should look like that I missed the pastor who was wanting to invest in me right there in person. There was this, uh, this church and they played this crazy Taylor Swift song to like introduce the sermon series. And I'm like, Taylor Swift's not a follower of Jesus and blah, 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 blah. We shouldn't play her music. Stuff that is completely embarrassing to say now. And the pastor was just like, it's just, we're just introducing the sermon. Just relax. Turns out that pastor was Brandon Williams and it was this church. And as a college student, I was just so opinionated and such a pain in our pastor's rear end and he was just wanting to invest in me because he believed in me and he cared about me. And despite how big of a pain in the butt that I was, he just kept inviting me back. Despite how opinionated I was, despite how uh, just, anyway, you guys get it. I was not living where I was planted. I was determined to get to the next thing. I thought I deserve to be a pastor. I deserve to lead a church. I deserve to have an opinion. I listen to my preference. And I was missing what God was doing right in my life, which was somebody who I looked up to so much was choosing to disciple me. We can, we can miss living where we're planted because of the worries, the stress, the preferences, the to-do list. Another thing that I think brings out last one for this section, our heart, or where does life bump up against this uh, people-first uh, value? Notice it when you get into an argument with somebody. How long does it take you when you get into an argument with your spouse or with, it can be a friend. 
if you can, objectively measure the gap between you offended them and when you apologize. Because that gap signifies how big of a gap there is between the value of living people first and actually living people first. I'll feel it sometimes in an argument. I'll do something. I'll have been a jerk to my wife. And the gap, I'm like, the clock starts now. You should apologize now. And I'm like, no, I am not going to apologize right now. But that gap betrays, like, of course, there's nothing about this argument that I'd rather win than be in relationship with my wife. These arguments, right, these tensions, this tension that we live in betrays this value of living people first. So how can we live out the value people first? How can we live out the value of living people first? I think there's this really, really powerful passage in John chapter 6 where it, it, it's been really challenging to me this week of, of what we see here. In John chapter 6, inevitably, as soon as you flip there in your Bible, you're going to see a couple things. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. Two of the most famous stories regarding Jesus that are, are in the Gospels. And in here, what I think is so cool about John is he tucks these little nuggets in here of detail that really teach us a lot. Starting at the beginning, it says in verse 4, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy the bread so that these people can eat? What John tells us is that Jesus asked this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. Understand this, this, Jesus is seeing this crowd coming. He's seeing all these people coming, and he knows very practical to-do list need. We got to feed these folks. Very practical, real-life stressor. This is a big crowd of people. And he looks at his disciples knowing what he was going to do, and he says, hey, uh, Philip, how are we going to feed them? And Philip immediately is like, oh, oh, Jesus. I mean, two months worth of money is not going to be able to feed this crowd. What are we going to do? And then I love, I love uh, Andrew. Andrew's like, hey, I saw that little boy's got two loaves of bread and some fish. It's like, Andrew, why do you know how much food that little boy has? That's just weird. Why would you like, anyway. What are you doing noticing what a little boy has for, for lunch over here? But Jesus is like, all right, just bring me the food. And what I love is that in the midst of that, the disciples get to witness one of the most powerful moments of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, immediately following that, immediately following that, it says that the people wanted to come and take Jesus and make him king. He pulls back, and then we get the walking on water scene. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, as the story goes on, boat ride don't go so good. It gets a little messy out there. And Jesus is just walking across the water. But another sermon for another time. But in this particular case, what's so fascinating is that the crowd, the same crowd, these thousands of people that just were fed from a couple pieces of bread and a couple fish say, huh, well, the disciples left in that boat. Jesus wasn't on the boat. I wonder how he got across the water. So they sprint around the sea, get to the other side. <laughs> and it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
And Jesus says, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Think about this. This thousands of people could see Jesus feed thousands of people from a couple pieces of bread and fish. No, in their mind, that boat left, Jesus wasn't on it, he's across the sea. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he got across there. But they know in their mind, and they can't connect the dots. This is what's been challenging to me with all of that. Jesus' challenge back to them is, you're not interested in me because of the signs. You're interested because you got fed. And, and what's challenging to me is I started thinking about this, this story in the Gospels is, who was the miracle for? Who was the feeding of the 5,000 for? Who was the walking on water for? Turns out it wasn't for the 5,000, right? The 5,000 sit and they see all of this and they don't conclude this guy is the Messiah. They know he walked himself across that water and this dude, uh, they get to the end. Think about this. I assure you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. 28, what can we do to perform the works of God? In other words, well, we're just like you. Why can't we do what you're doing? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. He's making it as level plain as he can, just as plain as day, as plain as he can make it. This is the work of God. Not that you feed thousands, not that you walk across water, that you believe in the one he has sent. How would you respond? I hope with everything in me that you don't respond like the 5,000. They look and say, well, what sign are you going to do? Well, what kind of miracle are you going to work? Can you believe that? Like, well, well Jesus, I, okay, okay. Before we get to this whole belief thing, what are you going to do so that we can believe? And you mean besides feeding the thousands and walk? Okay, not that stuff. How can we live out this value of people first? We're, here's where we need to start. We need to experience the love of Jesus personally and then express the love of Jesus accordingly. This is what's so breathtaking about this scene is that the crowd, despite every, every like, like mental detail of this, they are fed. 5,000 something people are fed and they saw that boat left. Jesus wasn't on it. They observe what Jesus was like and they miss it. They arrive at the wrong conclusion about what Jesus wanted and they take the complete wrong action. But the disciples, those who were closest to him, this is what happens. They experience the love of Jesus and it changes the way that they express the rest of their life. How we can live out the value of being people first is we experience deeply the love of Jesus and then out of the overflow of experiencing Jesus personally, we express Jesus accordingly. What's so crazy is that the end of John 6, 
all of these folks start leaving. They're like, this dude is crazy. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Therefore, Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Only a deep, meaningful experience with Jesus can change your life in such a way that you begin to express Jesus to the world. The point of the miracles was the effect that it had on the disciples, not the crowd. Jesus sets this up in the beginning of John 6 that the point was to test the disciples. And this is what's so scary to me is that the crowd got the bread. The disciples got the bread of life. The crowd, they got the bread. They came, they got what they were looking for. They got the bread, but they missed on the bread of life. My hope is that coming to a church service like this, that you don't only leave with the bread. I hope you don't come, you get enough of a moral fix for the rest of your week and that you miss out on the bread of life. The invitation is to come and feast on Jesus, experience him, and then go out into the world and express what you have experienced. Don't, don't leave here with just the bread. I love the, the, the expression of affirmation that Jesus gives at the end of this in the Gospels. Peter pours his heart out. We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says back, didn't I choose you, the 12? I chose you. You're here because I chose to bring you close. And yet what we can know is that Jesus was betrayed. He says it there, yet one of you is the devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. So this is what it's worth asking. What are some dangers of people first living? What are some dangers of people first living? Because you could be sitting here and listen and say, hey, I get it. I get it. People first, blah, blah, blah. That's how we should live. But Jordan, you don't know the people that I know. You don't know the type of family that I grew up in. You don't know the, the craziness of the type of friends that I'm around. I, if I put them first, I'll get eaten alive. What are some dangers of people first living? This is my encouragement to you. Is what's really clear for us is that we can't save anybody. That crazy family, those crazy friends, the people that you feel like you just can't break through to, no matter what. Let me relieve you of some burden with that. You can't save anybody. You can't fix everything. But what I do know is that those two realities can create such a hopelessness that you'll give up on everybody. You can't save anybody. You can't fix everything. But this is the exhortation of living people first. You can help someone. You can help someone. The value of people first living, this value, it keeps us in the game. When every relationship around us, every person around us, we would feel like there's no hope. 
the value of people first living pushes us back in the game. And Jesus is saying, I can use you to help someone. The fear and guilt of not being enough for everybody will drive you to think that you just can't help anybody. And friends, that is just not the case. I love this this comfort in the Great Commission, right? We're all familiar with the Great Commission. Make disciples, go, all that jazz. But what I love is the comfort that Jesus gives at the very end of it. And it's all a part of it. These are the last marching orders of Jesus. This is his final command. This is how he's sending out the disciples. Remember, these are the ones that he has chosen. And he didn't go 12 for 12. The ones that remain, he's sending them out. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is not going to send us on a mission that he is not going to empower personally. He is not going to throw us to the wolves. He's not just going to send us out and then just test us. Like, I was just seeing if you could sink or swim. That's how my mom was taught to swim, by the way, and I find that horrifying. Just thrown into the pool, hope you figure it out. Jesus is not that way with his mission. He is saying, I am sending you out. Go make disciples. And what I love is that Jesus' strategy for changing the world was not the 5,000. The 5,000 wanted to take him and make him king. And he says, no, I've got a better plan. I'm gonna focus right here, right where I'm planted. I'm taking those that the Father has given me and I will use them to change the world. Make no mistake about it. You are a follower of Jesus, not because of the 5,000, but because of the 11 that Jesus deeply invested in. The fear and guilt of not being enough for everybody will drive you to think that you can't help anybody. And friends, that's not true. God can use you to make a disciple, one person at a time. I think of that movie Hacksaw Ridge with a guy who's a, who's a, a, a medic and he's like, I'm not carrying a gun, but I'll run up there and I'll get anybody and help them any way that I can. And his phrase again and again is, I just gotta go get one more. And he climbs up that little rope and he goes and he gets one more and brings one person back. And just that, that sticks with me as a principle of discipleship. I'm just gonna go get one more. I'm just gonna go get one more. I'm so glad that in the midst of making a mess of my life as a college student, even as a Christian, that somebody, multiple people in my life said, I'm just gonna give him one more chance. I'm just gonna invite him back one more time. I'm just gonna invest in him one more time. Friends, we need that type of grace. And that is the type of grace that Jesus extends to us in the Great Commission. I am with you always. Remember that. I am with you always. Some some practical risks of putting people first. Getting hurt. It's messy. You have to take a risk. All of those things are in play. And what those things can cause us is to ask is like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Jordan, people are messy. Jordan, people have hurt me. Jordan, uh, uh, it, it, it's, I, every relationship just brings on this new element of risk. Is it worth it? And the answer to that 
is according to Jesus, yes. Look at the cross. Jesus died on a cross so that we could be made right with God, that we could be brought near to the Father. Not that we would hold him as a way off, distant God, but that we could call him Father. That is a a personal, people-first salvation. So what are we being called to action to with this morning? Our invitation is to experience the love of Jesus personally and express the love of Jesus out of the overflow of that. Let the stress and the worry of life, the arguments, the tensions, the to-do list, the stress, let that drive you to a people-first Savior. Understand that you can't do for everyone what Jesus did for you, but just focus, or you can't do for everyone what Jesus did for everyone, but you can be the hands and feet of Jesus one person at a time. Focus on the few and release the many to the Lord. Jesus chose an intentional method of focusing on three to 12 people at a time, making a deep, meaningful impact in their life. And that is the freedom that we have as followers of Jesus, that we don't have to fix the world. We don't have to fix everybody. We don't have to solve every problem. We can experience Jesus and express that love of Jesus to the few people that he has in our life. And this is what I wanna close with. It's Revelation chapter five. This is how I wanna close. Let, let Revelation chapter five give you confidence and boldness to pursue others. Let it give you confidence and boldness to secure others. Jesus has secured our eternity, amen? He has secured our eternity. Jesus desires people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I just wanna read this over you as we close. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. A lot of confusion languages, language there, but all it's saying is that the whole world, everybody sees the lamb and they acknowledge that this lamb is worthy and they are worshiping him. And they sang a new song at the worthiness of the lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Friends, we don't have to fight to secure this nation. Jesus has secured a kingdom for us. We don't have to worry about leaders here because we have a leader that has secured eternity for us. And he desires that not just this nation be saved, but that all nations from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people would be able to come and see the worthiness of this lamb. And that savior's worth is what we strive for to tell the whole world about the goodness of the lamb. Let this family value of every tribe, every tongue, every nation challenge the urgency of your people first living. People will hurt you. 
you will have to take a risk. It will be messy, but the lamb is worthy. And not only is he worthy, he's here and he sees your struggle and he walks with you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that we would all recognize the worthiness of the lamb. Lord, nothing can give us uh, the fulfillment that Christ can. Nothing is as fulfilling as expressing the love of Jesus to the world as we experience personally what you have done for us. So God, I, I pray this morning for our church that we would be convinced that living for your glory is expressing the love of Jesus to people. Lord, people are what matter on your scorecard. I pray that we would be convinced of that, that we would be convinced of not just of the value, but that we would allow that to shape our lives. Lord God, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.